Welcome to Rowan College of Burlington County's Baroness Podcast. I'm Dr. Brooke Myatt, Program Chair and Assistant Professor of our Entertainment Technologies Department. I'm Chair of the Women's Advocacy Group, a subcommittee of the President's Advisory Council on Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. This monthly series highlights women in leadership while encouraging listeners to build their skills, connect with the community, and visualize the opportunities available to women in various professions. Tune in for a female perspective on the Burlington County community. We are here to listen to these amazing women. And if you want to hear from women who lead and inspire, this podcast is for you. Welcome to our April podcast. We just finished Women's History Month. And this month we are still honoring women because that is what we do here on the Baroness Podcast. That's what we're all about. I want to welcome Dr. Ann Wallace, who is the Poet Laureate of Jersey City. So we're bringing you in from North Jersey now, now down into our territory is South Jersey. She is a longtime survivor of ovarian cancer, multiple sclerosis, and one of the nation's first long COVID patients. She has lived and written through illness for 30 years. Wallace is the founder and former board chair of the Ethical Community Charter School in Jersey City, and she's an English professor at New Jersey City University, where she specializes in composition, creative writing, and the literature of health and illness. Her poetry collection, Counting by Sevens, was published by Main Street Rag in 2019, and she recently completed a new poet manuscript, Days of Grace and Silence, a chronicle of COVID's long haul, tracing in real time over two years her prolonged illness of long COVID. She is the host and co-producer of Saturday Morning Poetry, a nature-inspired Instagram. And let me just tell you, I could go on and on, Anne. I mean, this is uh, by far the most amazing bio we've had here. And I'm honored to have uh, you know you here today into our studio, sitting across from you today. I wanted to start out with a segment that you wrote called Spinning, and it was published in Rhythm and Bones, a literary magazine, on July 15th, 2018. It says, here, in this moment, I struggle. I do not know where this narrative is meant to go, and without that, I do not know where this narrative begins. This is a story that is hard to tell. And I picked this because I feel this podcast is going to be obviously amazing, but I have no idea where it's going to go. And what I would love for you to explain to our our listeners is what exactly is the specialization of the illness narratives that you began and, and, and this journey that you began? Well, first, thank you so much for having me here. It's an honor and a delight. Um, that's a big question that you just asked. I, I start with the hard ones, Anne. <laughs> I know, but, but it's a good one. So let me think about that for a sec. Um, so I've been, I, I had cancer when I was in college at the end of my college, uh, my senior year of college. I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And at the time I was an art major. Um, that's what I specialized in college. And I wanted to think about how to tell the stories of women's cancers and at first I thought about how to do that through art, but it didn't really, nothing really came to me. Well, I had some ideas, but I didn't really realize them. I didn't act on them because at the time the art I was creating was, they were installations, they were houses. And that was a little bit um, not possible for me to do when I was sick. 
So I looked to how other women were telling their stories of cancer, of specifically women's cancers, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, which is what I had, but nobody was really writing about that, in part because the survival rate of ovarian cancer is pretty low. So it's not a story people were writing through or living through very often. And that has changed a bit, so I'm happy to say that. And there are more stories about ovarian cancer now than there were when I was diagnosed in 1992. So I wanted to find those stories, look at how they were told. Where were the silences? Where was the stigma? Where was the shame? Because there was a lot of all of that. (laughs) Um, And I wanted to think about how do women tell these stories? How do they move past the silence? How do they link these moments that make up a life together? And how do they create community? And how do they find each other? Because when you're sick, one thing that's really important is to find your community. Oh my gosh, I, I, I can't, I, I can support that completely. And we talk about that theme mm-hmm. over and over here, that network of yeah. those, the community, some say it, it's my divas, it's my, mm-hmm. my lady group, my yeah. group, you know, my, my girlfriends. And for you, that must've been something obviously you needed mm-hmm. to help you through this. Yeah. But I was sick very young and I, my community was not of other people with cancer. I didn't know anybody with cancer. I was 20, 21, 22 years old. And um, my community were my friends, right? My, my college friends. And I graduated then. And then I moved to, and I went to Drew University, which is in Madison, New Jersey. And I moved to Hoboken, which is about 30 minutes away. But I moved in with my boyfriend, who then later was my husband. Um, we are divorced now, but um, <laughs> he was my husband for a long time, father of my children. Um, and we still have a fairly close relationship, a good relationship. Um, but we lived together in Hoboken, and, and we didn't really have much of a network. We were newly graduated from college, and um, I wrote letters. I wrote a lot of letters with my friends. It was a kind before email was really a thing, it kind of existed, but nobody used it. Right. Um, so it letter- was like, how do we write that email through what? Kind right. Of right. How service? How exactly. much do I have to pay for that? Yes. I it remember was, those. Days. It was not. It was dial up. Remember yeah. that? Oh yes. Oh yes. <laughs> so, literally wrote letters with my friends. They sent me care packages, and um, so this art really started when you were writing these letters, trying to almost form your community, trying to express yourself through just finding that network of those people to help support you Mm -hmm. and that supportive, uplifting community. So this really started almost before it became your thing. For sure. And you didn't even know it was happening. It was just unraveling. Really, it was was growing right in front of you. Yeah. And in fact, I don't think I've ever really framed it um, going back to those moments before, just now of, right. of the letter writing, um, but that was it was key to getting me through day to day because I was very sick and I couldn't leave my apartment. We had a fourth floor walk up. Um, Oh my gosh! There, and then after everything you were been through medically, or yeah, I mean, you're slipping up to the fourth floor. Well, I just couldn't leave the apartment. Um, frequently because I couldn't, I could maybe get down the stairs, but there were, uh, when, on my weeks when I had chemo, I had chemo every, um, 
for a week mm-hmm. every four weeks and and I had it at home um and thanks to my lousy veins <laughs> I needed to have um a pick line installed in my in, in right. my arm which then came with home health nurses who came to my apartment to administer my chemo um so here you're this young woman <laughs> newly moved to this area yeah Stuck in my apartment. Stru- stuck in your apartment, trying to form this community, mm-hmm. and your outreach is to use a form of art, but not really the art that you were passionate about at that time, mm-hmm. but trying another form of art that was doable during this time. Exactly right. Um, of, of need. Yeah, connecting with people, and it's it's interesting to fast forward nearly thirty years to. 2020, March of 2020, when um, first my then 16-year-old daughter and then I became sick with COVID, um, the technology changed in that time, obviously, but I was connecting with people through social media. So again, it was another period of isolation, obviously now globally, (laughs) but also in particular for us because we were so sick. So we weren't going on walks and, you know, we were housebound out of illness, not just because it was COVID. I mean, not just because there was this, because it was more than the pandemic, it was also in our house. And so we couldn't leave our house um, because we were, you know, a risk to others and we were too sick. Uh, So again, social media... Well, not again. Again, letter writing. Again, words. words. But through um, social media now, writing messages to friends. And I, I was posting about my illness. I was very open about it. I thought, if this is happening here in my house, it's happening to other people, which was very different than having cancer when I was young, when I felt like... Alone. You were the only person. Mm-hmm. I felt very much alone. Not in an, a... De- that sounds... Um, like I'm asking for pity there. I don't mean it that way, but it, but it was a you know it was a singular experience. It was just right. me. But with COVID, it was it was more than me. Obviously, I was one very very small piece right. of and that then, story. And there's more. And there was more of a community at that time for you to reach out to and again yeah. and, and utilize those yeah. power of words. And then it's the access too, right? Mm-hmm. So before you were letter writing, putting stamps on it, you know, the whole process. Now, instantly, the power of word goes out by it with a click and instant, yeah. you know, instant reward and response, yeah. right? Yeah. Both of those things yeah. for you. But interestingly, words were not easy. Um, I was, once again, very sick. And um, writing... And thinking took a great deal of energy, mm-hmm. mental energy that was exhausting. Um, to give you an idea, I of like my level of illness, I uh, I was very I was severely hypoxic. It it, it was months. Li- the hospitals were full um, at the time, oh, yeah. and I was in and out of the ER. And they, I was not admitted. I was almost admitted a few times. And then months later, they, when I was in the ER, they wanted to admit me. And I thought, this is 
you want to admit me now, this is nothing. <laughs> what I have now is nothing compared to, compared what, I to had, what I had right, yeah. and was sent home. So one time, it was actually my 50th birthday, and my goal that day was to stay out of the hospital. And I didn't. Um, I did not meet my goal. I, I had to go to the hospital because I was my oxygen levels dropped and they didn't come back up. Normally, if I lay down and worked on my breathing, I could get my oxygen levels to come back up, but I couldn't this day. And so I was in touch with my nurse practitioner and she said, we were texting, she's like, you have to go now, go. Don't mess around with this. Things can turn on a dime and you don't, you want to be in the right place. You need to get to the hospital. So my ex-husband, Jason, (laughs) drove me um, because my current partner is a funeral director and he uh, I'm assuming he was quite busy. He was quite busy. Um, so that's another horrific end angle on this or piece of this story. Um, but Jason came and drove me to the hospital, and I couldn't walk on my own to get in. He had to help me, and my limbs were shaking. Um, I was having trouble speaking. I was trying to text with my nurse practitioner, but I was having trouble uh, typing and formulating words. It was very scary. It was probably it was probably the most I've had some terrifying days in my life. It was probably the most terrifying day of my life. Um and they sent me home. I mean, they observed me for a while. Oh, I should also say at that time, March 2020, Being observed in a hospital means your doctor opens the curtain and sticks his head in to talk to you from afar. You know, I was untouchable. Right. Um, Oh, yeah. No, this is full on suits and the whole. Yeah. Yeah. Because we weren't knowing what we were dealing with. Right. We had no idea. Right. And I can't fault those doctors. Of course. I mean, we. (laughs) They're following protocols. And I didn't want them to get sick. I mean, the first time I was in the ER, my. The doctor who was treating me said he hadn't seen his kids in two weeks, I think it was. That was um, a few days before I ended up back there on my birthday. Um, so my heart goes out to them. It went out to him. For um, I couldn't imagine being in his shoes sure, or any of their shoes. And um, so anyway, they, they did send me home that day on my birthday. And, and when I – so when I was – Lying down in the bed, they my oxygen would stabilize. Finally, it was stabilizing in the hospital. And then I said, but when the minute I stand up, it drops. And so they had me to walk a few steps within this curtained area, you know, like a hospital curtained bed sure. area. And it would immediately drop. So they said, well, then you need to go home and you can't get up. <laughs> you can't stand. Happy birthday to you. Right. You just, you just have to, you have to lie down. You have to, standing is... You can't do that. So that's what I did. And I did that for weeks on end. Weeks. And this and this must have taken you back to your, you know, your twenties. Yeah. When you're going through your cancer again, mm-hmm. you know, it's just this it's it's just another fight that you have to fight. Yeah. And you need and you're trying to produce this outlet of creativity because you're that kind of person you're you're you have it built into you I have the same thing I'm a creative person we need to get something out how, how do we do that mm-hmm. what 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 you know mm-hmm. method or or, or or what are we going to do to showcase that yeah. and I think what's so beautiful about 
your words, and, and we're going to use that again, like, you know, your words were not easy. It so reflects that obviously what you're going through wasn't easy, but that support of those people trying to assist you in putting those words out probably were amazing at at the time of March 2020 since we, you had at that time then now more people understanding what you were going through rather yeah. than from before in your 20s. Yeah. More people were understanding it in the large sense right. of, of COVID is scary and it's sure. deadly, right? Sure. But what people didn't understand and what I wanted to provide a, an opening for others to see was what that looks like. Sure. Um, others' experiences, like I'm going through this as anyone else. Yeah. Come and see what right. is happening. And and a lot of people needed that at that time. Yeah. People craved that it. That I wasn't alone. They cr- and they, they weren't alone. Mm-hmm. They craved information. I craved information. I put a lot of my very limited energy into gathering information I read as much as I could it was exhausting and my head hurt so my migraines my head it just and when was it Mm -hmm. that you had that aha moment that you were like I'm going to start writing these things writing these the words the 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 poetry the the short stories Mm -hmm. all these things that you started compiling and it was like this it was like medicine for you, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah, it was. Well, the first piece I wrote um, was before I was sick. It was when my daughter was sick, Molly, and I and I couldn't get her tested, and I was making all these phone calls to her doctor, to the city COVID hotline. The doctor was calling the state. We'd heard on you know from the White House that COVID tests were available. They were not available, and we know that now. Um, we know that the numbers of tests that we were told were available were not. And, um, and I, again, I thought if this is happening here and I'm pretty good at dealing with the medical system because I've been doing this for 30 years, um, first with cancer, then with MS and now COVID, if I'm having trouble navigating this with all my unwanted experience that I've had. Say, all the, the fabulous experience <laughs> right, that you really right. wanted to have. Exactly. You're like other people that have had no experience are, are floundering. At, yeah, they're like, at their limit. They have no idea where to turn. Right. So I wrote a piece for Huffington Post and I, I wrote it. I sent, I asked my daughter, Molly, I remember she was sitting like collapsed on the couch. I said, Molly, would you read this? Could you, are you okay if I send this to Huffington Post? She read it and she she was very tired and she was sick and she said, hey, that's okay. And, and um, you can do that. Um, and um, I guess sometimes I wonder if I, if it was unfair to ask her when she was so sick, but she agreed. Um, and it was published the next day. So Huffington Post, that's a pretty public way to go with your story, with your kids, with your child's story too. Sure. Um, but I needed her approval. Um, for one, and but I needed people to know that this was not easy. People think that kids don't. At that time, people thought kids didn't get COVID, and I thought I I don't know for sure that that's what Molly has, but I'm pretty sure it is. And regardless, she should be tested. She was in school earlier this week um, when I wrote the piece. Our city had not yet shut down. There were no official cases of COVID yet. 
she was supposed to take the SAT the next day after I wow. wrote that piece. Um, the SAT was finally, and I spent hours on the on the phone with the college boards trying to like find out how do I <laughs> yeah. transfer her registration? How do I? Is this test going to happen eventually? In the end, it was canceled at the eleventh hour because there there was an official case in our city, then in Jersey City, that. That Friday, when I wrote the piece, it, there finally was a case, and then they canceled the uh, SAT for the next mm. morning. Um, but that story needed to, it needed that to be out there for people to know that if if your child has these sort of symptoms, you may not be able to get them tested. Right. But it doesn't mean that they're not sick with COVID. And COVID may be in your home, it may be in your community, and you don't know it. And and you deserve to know it. You deserve to have this information. Um, so that was my first piece, but then a couple days later, I started <laughs> having symptoms, um, and I quickly became uh, became unable to write narratives like mm. essays like that or stories because I couldn't. I didn't have the mental capacity. Sure. But April is National Poetry Month, and I generally write a poem a day. I mean, I'm not alone. <laughs> a lot of poets do this. This is like the April challenge that, that many poets um, put forth for themselves to write a poem a day. It doesn't have to be a good poem. It doesn't have to be a finished poem, but write a poem a day. And I thought, you know, my symptoms started on March 17th. So now I'm a couple weeks into my symptoms and I thought, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try. If I can't do it, I can't do it. But I want to document this, at least for myself. Um, I want I need to try to capture this visceral experience of this illness. And kudos to you for being like motivated at this point because <laughs> you were literally just right, like the sole provider for your daughter going through this. Yeah. You had no idea what it was going to do to you with yeah. all your other pre existing conditions and medical history, right? Mm -hmm. And now you're trying to be the strong one in the family <laughs> and then here, right. And then here you're just trying to put sentences together. Yeah. Who knows how many sentences that would be. Yeah. And now looking back on it, I mean, it's, it's really an amazing feat that you could do what you did. Thanks. And the first few, the first few days that you, you did write the, the, the poetry, what, what was going through your mind? Did you ever think it was going to become what it is now? <laughs> I never thought I would be sick for so long. Um, when I first became sick, my um, doctor and nurse practitioner said, well, most people are sick for two weeks, but you have MS, so likely it's going to be four weeks. Four weeks. <laughs> that would have been... Turned into six weeks. <laughs> four weeks would have been beautiful. Turned, yeah. yeah, turned it right. And... Um, so I had no idea what it was going to be, but I just needed to document um, in whatever way I could. And I and also at that time, none of us knew that the pandemic would be would last as long, right? <laughs> Schools shut down originally for two weeks. My own school, where I teach and right. was teaching, we originally were told two weeks. Of course, that lasted so much longer. We didn't know what it was going to turn into. Uh, I certainly didn't know on a personal level what it would be. 
but I just needed to write it. I and I and I was still consuming the news as much as I could. I was looking at medical research. So I was also writing not only about what was happening in my own home and in my own body and in my yard because I would uh, could in my living room every day I would get up and go downstairs and collapse on the couch. And that's where I would spend my day because I would be close to the refrigerator where I could get water or the kitchen and get, um, um, you know, my living room is next to my kitchen. So I needed to be close to these things. And then at the end of the day, I would make my way stagger up the stairs because going upstairs was very difficult. Um, but my living room has, you know, I live in a city, so I don't have a big house. It's like a row house. Um, but I have large windows onto my backyard so I could watch the birds and I could watch the season changing into spring. So I wrote about what I could see. I wrote about the sirens, the endless sirens, um, again, in a city. Sure. That's all we could hear day and night. And my daughter's cough, that's in my poems. Her cough lasted months, months. It's really unbelievable. And, and I love that you brought this up. And I Sorry to stop you midway, yeah. but it's interesting that you you explain it that way because I teach, you know, my 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 core is 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 I'm a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And I tell my students that sound and audio is is fifty percent of of any production. Yeah. And it's interesting that you're using this for your production yeah. of, you know, closing your eyes and the perception of just listening. Yeah. And and yeah, you you can open your eyes and see, but it's really amazing that if you were if you're to close your eyes and just be of all the things that you're missing and you know, bring into your your the element of of what you're trying to understand mm-hmm. and gather. And this is kind of what you're gathering. You were gathering all these artistic moments right first it's the sense of the hearing then it's the seeing Mm -hmm. you know and and then it then it was what what you could do that day being motion you know Mm -hmm. motion or motionless depending on your day right and it's so beautiful that that was kind of how that those those words started flowing yeah yeah and it was a time of silence Mm -hmm. globally right right Um, we know this and uh, um so in a time of silence, because the world was so still, you, the, the sounds that you do hear stand out all the more dramatically. Mm-hmm. So birds, sirens, cough, birds, sirens, cough. Um, Is there but, one of your poems that's your favorite? Um, from that period? Yeah. Do you have like a favorite one? I have a few. Um, I... I did write one called Spring Song, and it's about those three sounds. That's one that is um, that is a favorite of mine. It's a short poem. I'm going to read Spring Song since you just referenced it. The sirens cry the soundtrack. Is that? Am I reading it right? You mm-hmm. want me to read it? Or would you like to read it? Why don't you read oh, sure, it? Sure, sure. Because I think coming from you would be perfect. So sure. since you just referenced Spring Song, I'm going to have you read it. Spring Song. The sirens cry the soundtrack of this silent spring. A wail intertwined with birdsong by day. With my daughter's dry, dry cough through the night. Life and death bound together, contrapuntal, 
on and on so that I no longer hear the sirens until I do. Does that take you back to that day? It does, yes. Uh, sometimes that one's a hard, hard one for me to read. Uh, many of my poems from this period are hard to read at times. It does take me back. Um, uh, I think I wrote that one in early April 2020. Um, so Molly was probably a month into her illness. She was mostly recovered by then. She is also a long hauler, though, so you know, recovered, recovered from her acute illness, even though that cough lasted a long time and her sore throat lasted a long time. And then new symptoms came months later, but, um, and she's still dealing with this three, three years later. And these words were obviously supportive for you, supportive for your family and friends, but I'd love for you to share when you, you put this out to the world, right? Because obviously before it we didn't have such easy access to all these people that were now kind of homebound and mm-hmm. needed access to this support. What were what were the responses that you were getting? What were the feedback? What was what were people talking about when you were sharing these? Well, I wasn't sharing my poems um, so much. I was, unless they were published. I, I was thinking when I was writing the poetry. It was first for me, and to create a record, but I wasn't sharing them in the moment, in part logistically, strategically, because a lot of poetry journals will not publish poems if they've been posted on social media, even they consider that published, or that actually, that rule is changing with many journals right now, Um, but I didn't want to share it online, because then I wouldn't be able to publish them later, so, but also, I wasn't writing them to share them in that moment, I think, they were drafts. Right. That kind of um, came later that. Yeah, that came later because the revision process takes a lot of um, a lot of effort and energy that I didn't necessarily have. I was just writing these and keeping them for myself in the moment. A, a few of them were published right away, but I also just didn't even have the energy to send out submissions, which is a process itself. But what I was doing is I was writing long posts on social media every maybe four or five days with updates of how we were doing, what our life was like, and people were sharing those. And I sometimes I would post a photograph of myself. It took five weeks for me to qualify for home oxygen, and I remember posting about that. And at five weeks, I still needed that desperately, and getting that oxygen was a big deal. It felt like it was potentially a lifesaver for me. And I posted about that. People were sharing my posts. I was doing this on Facebook. Um, sure. So not really a big Twitter user. Um, I also am far too wordy for Twitter. Um, I just, My posts were long. <laughs> right. So um, We have a lot to say. Yeah, I did. I did have a lot to say. And it would take me about a day to write these posts because my energy, as I was saying before, I didn't have time to write narratives, but the posts were sometimes quite long and so it took a lot of energy and a lot of time for me to write them and then people would respond and I didn't have energy to respond to their responses they'd ask me questions and that was exhausting because just writing the post was all of my energy for the day but I wanted to get out more than getting out my poetry at that time it felt so much more important to get out the practical information 
and the information about what the lived experience with COVID was like, I, I needed people to know that because that's what people wanted to know. They wanted to know what it felt like to, to have COVID, how difficult it was to get medical care, to get medical attention, to get testing, what it was like to go to a hospital. Um, and what are these people responding to you with? Um, a lot of concern, but also a lot of gratitude. Sure. Um, again, as I was saying, people were, you were sharing. this outlet. You were yeah. almost like this yeah. found hotline it, that they couldn't get answers anywhere it, else, but yeah. you were like this saving grace, really. It was sort of fascinating on one level. If I weren't so sick, I would. <laughs> um, that in itself was interest. Like, Yeah, you're wondering, what would you be doing if you weren't so right. sick? Right, like, what exactly. would be, and, and you're not sharing this mm-hmm. this outlet of, 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 of what your needs were and yeah. how you were progressing and, and and yeah. the world. And I heard from, I got, I've received a number of private messages from people um, who themselves were symptomatic. And I, I heard from a couple of people who didn't want to tell their family members that they were sick. And one of my main messages to people was, please don't do that. Please don't feel shame or stigma or guilt. Maybe even some people felt, don't feel that way. Um, I, so that's a, that's a horrible thing to say. Don't feel that way. You feel and what you hard. feel, but don't, yeah. but please don't hold back from asking for help or from being open about what you're going through because people need to know your family. If you don't want to tell your, yeah. your grown kids or your parents or whoever that you're sick, put yourself in their shoes. They want to know. They will want to know that this is something you're experiencing. It is a terrifying illness. At, at that time, it was t- terrifying. Nobody knew what the outcomes would be for anyone. Um, so I was trying to encourage people to be open about their illnesses. They didn't have to be as open as I was. I don't mean they needed to spread it all over social media, but at least share it with their family members because people wanted to help and not to be afraid to ask for help. Yeah, I think piece. a lot of people that they afraid to ask for help. And I love that we came full circle about the guilt and the shame because yeah. we've talked about that here on Baroness as women. Mm-hmm. That is almost inert. We always we 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 do feel shame and we feel guilt when we can't do something, yeah. um, and that's just something inert in in what we do. Um, but I love that you 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 know you shared that, and these words. I mean, such and I've read. And if anybody wants to go to annwallacephd.com, a n n w a l l a c e p h d dot com, wants to read any of her poems. And, and I wanted to read really quickly something that Juliana Hurden said from Literary Mama about your collection of poems that you put together, which was the Counting by Sevens mm-hmm. collection. Before I read that, where did you come up with the title? Well, I have MS. Um, and one of my primary symptoms of MS is that I have vertigo. And my neurologist sent me for a series of vestibular tests, they're called, to try to figure out the source of my vertigo, to be sure that it was coming from um, my brain rather than my inner ear. So most people, when they have vertigo, it's an inner ear issue. And that, that's a good thing because that's treatable. Right. When it's coming from your central nervous system, it's not, it's not 
curable. So we wanted to be sure. We suspected, because most people with MS, that is the case, that it's not an inner ear thing. But we wanted to be sure, because what if it was? And then I was experiencing something that could have been cured. Um, anyway, sure. so, so the way to test that is to have vestibular tests. And I had a th- series of three tests, and I felt like I was not very well prepared psychologically for these tests. I had no idea how absolutely horrific they would be. Um, so in one day, the course of one morning... I had three tests. The first one was standing on a platform that would kind of give way suddenly. I had like a harness around. I was in a harness, and um, the platform would sh- would shift, and then sometimes it would drop away. And it was to bal- check my balance and how. And they would be measuring with cameras and and such while I did that. That one wasn't so bad, um, but the second one. They had me in a room and, and a dark room and put goggles on me with a camera, like a blacked out goggles and um, a camera was in one of the lenses. I had to keep my eyes open and they laid me down and they blew air into my ear. And if that doesn't sound horrifying, let me assure you it is because what that does is when you have air blown in your ear, it causes intense vertigo. Mm. which was the purpose. They wanted to give me vertigo so they could measure it. And they'd have me come up and go down, and they'd do that, and they did it on each ear. So that was horrible. And then the third one was I had to sit in a chair. It was a chair without a back, and it was in a chamber. It was dark, again, because they had these cameras on my eyes, and they were measuring everything. And the chair spun in circles in this darkened chamber. And when they do these tests, they the, the second test with the air in my ear, they had me name names, a name, a, a girl's name that begins with A, a boy's name that begins with B, a girl's name that begins with C. Sounds like a bad squid game episode, does yeah. it? Yeah, it's, it's bad. <laughs> it's like and very I, interesting. I've never heard of such a thing. Yeah. So this is interesting. I mean, people that have been tested for this obviously have gone through this, but... Yeah. I think someone it's a from distraction. A, someone from an outside perspective hearing this, you're like, right. oh, my God, what, what? Did they actually do this? It felt like torture, honestly. And then oh and the counting by sevens is they had me count by sevens in that chamber. Um, While this is all going on. Yeah, when, I, when I was spinning in the chair in the dark. And um, I don't know if you've ever counted by sevens, but it's not easy. No, <laughs> I have uh, never. In fact, I think that's the opening. I actually to the, don't want to do that. You don't want to. <laughs> um, but it apparently, and I didn't know this at the time, is a is a, a fairly common neurological test. Um, though I think they've stopped doing it in some places because they realized how seven how difficult it is to count by sevens, even for, for people who don't have neurological problems. Um, you know. 1, 7, 14, 21, we can get that far. But when you're in the 80s and 90s, it gets a little tricky. <laughs> I, I believe um, it when so, all this other stuff is going on. Right, yeah. exactly. Um, so so, so uh, that's a poem. Uh, that's my. That's where it came from. Yes, and that's my poem called Vestibular Test 3. So it's another, and that's just an, another uh, part of your life where basically you're going through this trauma again, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So... Julie from Literary Mama writes, Annie Wallace's debut collection of poems, Counting by Sevens, is, at first glance, about the wounds we all bear as humans. Some of these wounds are born publicly, such as the collective trauma brought on by cultural tragedy. Other hurts, those stemming from illness or personal tragedy, are endured more privately, and Wallace's poetry 
with its clarity and precision, not only observes the effects of all manner of wounds, but also testifies to the specific lens that motherhood lends to hurting and to healing. So it's so interesting to me that you wrote something like this as a mother, now leading into your daughter's illness, and you wrote that Huffington Post piece, and then you again began to use the art form for now your poems through COVID. Why don't you update everybody where you are with that poetry? Sure. Well, I have compiled these poems I wrote during COVID, you know, starting in 2020, spring 2020. And I have a lot of them. I have, I don't know, I I certainly wrote more than 100 poems about COVID. um, Because again, my illness went on and on and on. I've compiled many of those poems into a collection. It has not yet been published. I've been sending it out. And also, the interesting thing is, is that every time I think that collection is done, it's not because something else happens in my COVID journey, but I think it really is done now. Um, but Tell it, people where you're at in mm-hmm. your COVID journey, because I think yeah. this is very interesting. Not a lot of people understand mm-hmm. where you are with your health at this moment. Yeah, so um, it's been three years now since... I got sick and since Molly got sick and I'm doing very well, but I wasn't able to work for um, nearly two years after getting sick because acute COVID was one thing. Actually, it was a very seamless situation. I never really got better from the acute COVID. Some people with long COVID have their acute illness, then they feel better, and then they had developed new symptoms. For me, I never got better. I just, my symptoms changed over time, Mm -hmm. and they worsened, honestly, um, in many ways. And I've had more than 90 symptoms over the course of a couple years, affecting nearly every system in my body, Mm -hmm. um, including intense pain, um, hypoxia, dysautonomia, making it very difficult to to walk up um, stairs or stand up from a seated, seated position, stand up to walk upstairs, to walk up in a hill. I still struggle with that sometimes. And I had to go through an, a lot of um, physical therapy to re, you know, retrain my body to be able to handle walking. Um, and I used, you know, I had my oxygen tank for a year and a half. I wasn't on oxygen around the clock all that time. I was on oxygen in the beginning when I first got it for around the clock for a month or so, and then as needed, and then sometimes my symptoms would get worse and I would need it more again. Um, send it, you know, get Sending that oxygen tank back to the medical supply company was a kind of a scary day. <laughs> because, well, right, because you were using that as the crutch. You didn't know if it was going to yeah, get better or not and, yeah. and keep it was... You were you were living in this, mm-hmm. you know, roller ebb coaster. and flow. Yeah, yeah, yeah roller coaster yeah. certainly. Yeah. You know, every Baroness podcast, I, I I take notes of powerful words that have come out of our discussion, and I I say that there are hashtags, and I always ask our guests, "What is your personal hashtag?" And I'm and I would think that it might be hard for you as a as a writer to come up with one, but I'm going to read some of the words that we've we've talked about mm-hmm. today. 
And then I'm going to turn it over to you to tell me what you think your personal hashtag is mm-hmm. throughout this amazing journey that you shared with us. So here, here I go, because we have a long list here. Yeah, I bet. Hashtag spring song, hashtag symptoms, hashtag standout, world so still, deserve, illness, cancer, art, stories, silences, stigmas, shame, community, getting me through, lifesaver, guilt, ask for help, counting by sevens, torture, community, symptoms. Well, let's see. What can I add to that? It's a long list. Um, I have two mantras almost that I think of, and they kind of go hand in hand. Okay. One is, um, you can do it. <laughs> um, okay. And that comes from, I hesitate to say this because his reputation has been, um, is not a great one. Bella Caroli, the oh, Romanian yeah. gymnast, gymnast coach, coach yeah. who's... Um, got a bit of a tarnished story um for the as a coach but his words that he always said to his gymnast was you can do it and um so if I take away the sort of abusive aspect of that it's something I always tell myself and the part that goes hand in hand with it is not too much that's what I always say. Whether do you would you like some sugar in your coffee? Not too much. Would you like some <laughs> nothing too much, right? And I right. feel like my life has frequently been a whole lot of too much. Um and I'm always you know sort of pleading with the universe not too much. So you can do it and not too much. I love those. <laughs> they're that that I think they're perfect for today. Um where can our listeners find out about your journey? What next steps and and interact with you? Sure. So um, you shared my website before. It's annwallacephd.com. And I'm also on Instagram at annwallace409. It's Ann without an E, annwallace409 on Instagram. I'm on Twitter as well, but not as often. That's at annwlace409. Don't ask. Um, <laughs> so um, I'm there, and uh, those would be the main places. But you can, people can always contact me through my website. There's a contact me form, so you can send me a message there. Um, That's great. Yeah. Well, what well, one thing I just want to say: thank you so much for sharing your your journey, uh, health wise, um, art wise, personal. Uh, emotional, emotional, mental, I mean, everything today, really, it all came out. And and I thank you for opening up your heart and your mind and and your story to our listeners here at the Baroness podcast. Um, You know, again, we're continuing celebrating Women's History Month, but we're also going to be here celebrating National Poetry Month. So again, Thank you so much, Anne, for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the RCBC Baroness podcast, which highlights women in leadership while encouraging listeners to build their skills, connect with the community, and visualize the opportunities available to women in various professions. For more information about this podcast or other podcasts available on the RCBC Podcast Network, visit rcbc.edu slash podcast and subscribe to the RCBC Baroness Podcast wherever you tune in.
For a female perspective into the Burlington County community, you have been listening to the Baroness Podcast. Take care. Thanks. You've been listening to the RCBC Baroness Podcast, which highlights women in leadership while encouraging listeners to build their skills, connect with the community, and visualize the opportunities available to women in various professions. For more information about this podcast or other podcasts available on the RCBC Podcast Network, visit rcbc.edu slash podcast. And be sure to subscribe to the RCBC Baroness Podcast, available on all streaming platforms.